previously on Let's Get Real. I threatened to sue the church. I think I have never actually mentioned this before. On today's episode of Let's Get Real, we'd like to introduce Don Bradley. Don Bradley. Don Patrick Bradley. Author of the 416 pages. Reconstructing the Missing Contents of the Book of Mormon. Hello, everyone. Back when I was an ex-Mormon atheist, I got hired by Brian Hills to research Joseph Smith and polygamy. I promise that the presentation itself will be similarly dramatic. I met with the stake president. One of the last things he said to me was he had a feeling that I would be back. Now that I was seeing the historical data through this larger lens, I need to be back in the church. Up next, Don Bradley, part two. This is going to be an exclusive for you. It's the first time I've talked about this in a podcast. This has to do with Joseph Smith and polygamy. What were Joseph Smith's motives? A number of lines of argument that convinced me. And remember, I just want to know what happened. If Joseph Smith is doing this to sort of maximize his immediate sex with the hot babes, somebody needed to give this guy lessons because he's doing it wrong. After I had really like the big wow, right, of uh, realizing that there was much more going on with this Joseph Smith character than I had thought, um, and that his motives were not, he wasn't the one-dimensional figure that I had at one point thought. Um, I, and realized that like, you know, the the church had worked in my life. The restoration had worked in my own life. My own life experience bore it out. Um, then I decided to return to the church. Um, I uh, went, um, this is just over the summer when it, while I was in grad school, right? I went, I was doing some work in Salt Lake. I just, um, I actually went back to the stake president, Utah Valley, who had said to me, remember the last thing he'd said is he had a feeling <laughs> I would be back. And I had humored him by saying it was possible while thinking, I'm never going back. I was, I had, I was scared to go back. I had a lot of trepidation. Mm. I didn't know. My bishop, when I had left, he had was a really good guy, but he had kind of misinformed me. He had told me that like, that what I was doing was worse than being excommunicated. That, really? Mm-hmm, someone had told him this because you were sort of presuming to remove yourself from the church when you shouldn't mm. do that. And so I actually thought that when I came back, there was going to be something sort of punitive to that mm. process of coming back. So I was, and and I didn't want it to be like a long drawn out process with sort of like discipline. I didn't, I didn't yeah, want that. Yeah. And so I found that stake president. I went and knocked on his door and I said, do you remember me? <laughs> <laughs> and he did. And I said, do you remember like th- what you said to me at the end of that meeting? And he said, I think so. And and I said, well, you, you told me I would, you had a feeling I'd be back. And guess what? <laughs> like, I'm, I want to come back to the church. And so I asked him, what will I have to do to come back? And he he gave me just like a little bit of a glimpse because at that time, I think it's changed now. And it's actually part of the reason why I like to tell my story. Mm-hmm. When I left the church, there was so much information online about how to leave the church. Mm-hmm. When I went to come back to the church, there was mm-hmm. nothing about coming back. There was nothing. It was, this, was, this was 2010. It was almost exactly five years. Wow. Um, there was nothing. And so I, mm. I felt like I was flying blind. I didn't know what the process was going to be like. That stake president just gave me like the smallest glimpse of the process. He said, well, you have to, you know, go to church. You're sort of up to your bishop. He'll sort of set the terms. Mm. And like, um, 
he might want you to take the discussions. And I remember thinking, please, no, please, no, don't, don't <laughs> yeah. have me take the discussions, right? And, um, <laughs> like, uh, I'm sorry. and so I went and met with the bishop um, uh, after this, right, where I was living. Guy I didn't know. He didn't know me at all. Um, just a wonderful man. And I told him kind of where I had been. I last several years of my life and that I wanted to come back to the church. And he told me, he said, the Lord wants you back in his church. Hmm. And um, he told me later after he, he talked with the stake president about what needed to be done. And he told me that I was going to have to revisit my letter. Hmm. Now, remember, I wrote that letter not only to leave the church, but to bar the way of ever coming back. I mm -hmm. wrote that letter to keep myself out of the church. Mm -hmm. And remember, I had threatened the church with legal action in that letter, which the church really doesn't like that. No institution likes that, but the church <laughs> definitely does not like that. And I knew that, right? <laughs> and so this was part of my strategy to keep myself from ever being able to come back. And like I said, I had sort of borne my anti-testimony mm -hmm. about all kinds of issues in the letter. And so after the bishop said that, I went home, I found a copy of my letter, and I cried. I read the letter, mm. and I cried. I thought, I, when I saw what I had said, mm. I was like, I forgot that I said that and mm. that and that. And I was like, they are never letting me back in the church. And so mm. I called the bishop in tears and told him, and he said, he said, son, if the church couldn't forgive it couldn't be the Lord's church. Mm. And um, he had me take the discussions. <laughs> and at first I was dreading it, and then I just accepted it as part of the process. And I thought, well, this is, among other things, it's going to be kind of an interesting anthropological experiment because I've, I've been on the other side of the discussions, giving the discussions. Right? Mm. So what's it like to be an investigator? The bishop did not want me to tell the missionaries that I had been a member of the church before because he thought if I did, they would leave things out of the discussions and he uh, wanted them to give everything. So those missionaries were about to show up at my place and I realized that in the hallway that they'd be walking through, I had bookcases with every conceivable book on Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. Mm. And so I started racing to move those bookcases <laughs> into my bedroom. And I finished just before the knock came on the door, right? And so they came and they they taught me the discussions. And after the first discussion, um, I had been, actually been talking with people on a message board, which on about Mormon stuff, and which you know gets messy. Yeah. <laughs> like, like on the internet, like people misunderstand each other way more than they understand each other. So there's yeah, a lot of yeah. backbiting, you might say. Um, fighting. And um, so that's what I'd been doing like before they came, before I moved the books. So after they left, I was sitting there pondering what they'd said, what we talked mm. about. And then I thought, oh, what was I doing before? Because I'll go back to doing that. And I thought, oh, I was on that message board. And I thought, I mm. thought about it and I thought, that just, see, I feel like I'm at such an elevated place right now. Mm -hmm. that it feels like that would be going back into the swamp. You know, I just didn't feel like doing that. And I thought, like, hmm. I'm feeling the spirit. <laughs> you know? um, 
And even though the missionary discussions, they're so simple, they're so basic, every one of those discussions, I felt like I learned something new about the gospel. Wow. I had new insights. Wow. And I, I've been at this for a while, right? Wow. Like this has been like, since I was 15, this has been like the biggest focus in my life, you know? What did you learn? And I, I'd have to look at like okay. notes or journal entries because I don't mm. remember. I just, I, I don't just remember. insight, I feel like yeah. you're saying. right, 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 right. And so... Um, Less than two months, I completed the discussions, and less than two months. Oh, oh, okay. So the the bishop, remember, I had concerns about my letter. I'm a better writer than I am speaker, okay? <laughs> and so I had really crafted that letter very well, wordsmithed it. It was a powerful letter, and now I'd been told that I was going to have to meet with the bishop and account for the things that I said in the letter, explain the things I said in the letter. And I thought, how do I do that? Because my writing self is like more powerful than my speaking self. So my writing self crafted this great exit letter. What am I gonna say now to kind of contextualize that and, and be better, stronger than that? And the bishop asked me, this is at his discretion, he asked me to write a new letter responding to my old letter. Mm. And I did. And my new letter swallowed my old letter whole, right? My new letter what a cool was invitation. so much more powerful. Mm -hmm. That's a cool invitation. And so after the discussions were done, he asked me to meet with him and his uh, counselors and um, bring the letter and read it out loud. Mm. Wow. And the moment that I got done reading that letter, he said, on behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I'd like to invite you to be rebaptized. And um, I scheduled the baptism for the next Sunday. And um, uh, so uh, my baptism was going to be after church. I asked a, a really good friend of mine, Lincoln Cannon, to do that because he gave a real example to me of being constructive instead of tearing down, right? Yeah. And um, uh, I'd actually found that going back to church for those couple months had been a really uplifting experience. I had expected it to annoy me uh, because that's how I'd felt when I was leaving the church, as I'd felt really just alienated from it. And honestly, I, I kind of had needed a break from church, <laughs> what I needed, <laughs> but I didn't take one. And mm. so I just kept going, even though I was feeling mm. so upset about it. And that just made it worse for a while, this back before I left, right? But now I was thinking, you know, people seem much more thoughtful at church than I remember. Mm. And after a while, I realized the church couldn't have changed that much in five years. What had changed was this guy. Right. Whoa, whoa. Right. That is the punchline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, whereas before I had been kind of on edge, like kind of expecting to be offended or upset or whatever, now I, I was more charitable. I was more open to mm. other people's insights. And I, I was more willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and what they were saying. I recognize that we're all human and I don't have to agree mm. with everything that everybody says. But actually, when I was open to it, people had a lot of insights. So just, just to show that um, God had a sense of humor. Um, <laughs> okay. 
I'd been going back to church for two months. It was the day that I was getting baptized. We had the three meetings, right? <laughs> we had um, sacrament meeting, Sunday school, and then elders quorum. The last meeting of those two months before my baptism, right? It was like two hours before I was going to get baptized. We had a lesson uh, in elders quorum about authority, priesthood authority. And the elders quorum teacher, instructor, asked people to do skits. <laughs> and the skits were acting out the theme of authority. So I remember one of the skits was like, he had one guy pretending he was like driving down the road and this other guy pretends he like pulls him over mm, and he mm. says, excuse me, sir, I'm just like one of your neighbors here in this neighborhood and I noticed you didn't stop completely at that sign. So I'm giving you a ticket. You know, you need to pay like 50, pay me $50 or something. And so, of course, the the upshot is it's funny, right? Because yeah. this guy's not a cop. Yeah. He's not a police officer. Like he doesn't have any authority to do this. Well, what? So the, so the, the driver's like, well, who are you? Yeah. What's your authority, right? So that made the point, well, then the last skit, so this is the very end of Elder's Quorum, right? Um, right before I'm going to be rebaptized. And the the next skit is um, the uh, instructor had the guy um, saying like uh, he'd had a revelation that the second coming was near, but as a test of our faith, the Lord wanted us to take ourselves and our families up to Mount St. Helens and throw ourselves in. I think he's picturing it. It's because yeah. it's a volcano. He's picturing it. It had like a, probably like a crater with lava in it, which I don't think is the case. But like, um, uh, and then, so everybody's laughing, right? And then uh, like, because obviously the, the question is, well, who is this guy to tell us this? Kind of like, um, and so people were laughing, and one of the people in the quorum said, yeah, like we do that if anybody but the prophet told us to. And somebody else said, yeah. <laughs> and suddenly I stopped laughing. I'm like, wait a minute. We're not laughing about the same thing. Uh, I, I'm laughing because this is completely absurd, and they're laughing because the wrong guy is telling us to do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, there there are some things in the culture of the church that I don't always like, and yeah. they're still there, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm still going to encounter them. It was like that was being told to me in a very funny way. Oh yeah, yeah. right, be right before I got baptized. So <laughs> I still got baptized because obviously that's not that big a deal. But like, um, uh, so I got um, baptized again, and um, I went on to one of the message boards. Uh, now it's the Mormon Dialogue and Discussion Board, to announce my rebaptism to people that I had previously been arguing with, mm. right? Because that's mostly, mostly Latter-day Saints on this board. Over 200 people came on to that thread to welcome me back to the church. It was just, I was wow. just overwhelmed, right? Wow. And people who, um, people like Brian Hales, people like Dan Peterson, who had known me when I was outside the church, right, had always been kind to me. And of course, were very welcoming, very happy for me when I came back. Um, I had to go through what's called the restoration of blessings. Yeah. And this was another thing that was like a big gray area in my mind. I had no idea, what is it? You hear that such a thing exists, but I didn't have any mental image of what this is. Is it an ordinance? So I go back to the temple to get it? What, what is it? And so um, mm. this is a year after rebaptism. You're eligible for this if you've like been through the temple before. 
Basically, the stake president just laid his hands on my head, gave me a blessing, and um, said um, that all of my former blessings were restored, temple blessings, priesthood, and so on. Uh, so it's like an ordination or blessing. And there was a letter accompanying that blessing from the first presidency. Mm. And the letter, and I actually got permission from Elder Jensen, who was the church historian and the general authority at the time, before I first shared this publicly. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's okay yeah. for me to share all this. Yeah. But like, I wanted other people to know what, because like I said, when you're going to leave the church, there's so much information online. When you're going to come back, eh, mm, not so mm. much, right? And so I want people to know what this process is like. And remember how that bishop had said to me, if the church couldn't forgive, it couldn't be the large church. Yeah. Okay. In that letter from the first presidency, it quoted the Doctrine and Covenants saying, that to him that repenteth, I will remember his sins no more. Mm. When you come back, if you have left the church, if you have left the church and you come back, at first, there will, if you've been through the temple before, at first there will be a, like a note on your membership record that says like your original um, endowment date and your new baptism date. So it'll be clear that like your you were must have been out of the church because your endowment date will be before before, uh, yeah, before yeah, your yeah. baptism date, right? Yeah. Once you have a restoration of blessings, they remove that from your word record, membership record, mm. and it shows your original baptism date. And so it is exactly the same as if you had never left the church at all. And so if anyone wonders, right, mm. if the church really forgives, I can tell you, they do, right? They do. And so five months after I came back to the church, I got a call from a good friend, Mark Ashurst McGee of the Joseph Smith Papers, saying that they wanted to bring me on for a while to help with the earliest Joseph Smith documents, the 1820s documents for Documents Volume 1 of the Joseph Smith Papers. And I wanted to ask, mm. you do know that I, I was out of the church just recently, right? Like I barely came back and I plastered the internet with things, non-believing things and so on. But I didn't ask that because I knew he knew because Mark was at my rebaptism. <laughs> and so later at, while I was at the Joseph Smith papers, I got a chance to meet with Elder Jensen about something else, Marlon K. Jensen. And at the end of our conversation, he said, I want you to know that we know all about your little detour that you took in your faith, and it doesn't matter. We're just happy to have you here and contributing. And when I asked later if I could share that, he said yes. He, he added, just make sure that people realize that it's a big deal to leave the church. <laughs> it's, it is serious, right? But like... Um, I hear what he's saying. Right. But like, um, I... Was I've been welcomed back. It's been several years now, obviously, right? But I've been welcomed back just so beautifully. And uh, it's been one of the most amazing experiences of my life to I thought, Stephen, when I came back to the church, I actually thought I was giving up my career in Mormon history because I knew I would have some new findings to share with people, but I, my whole career trajectory had been, I was gonna give a naturalistic explanation of Mormonism. And so I thought I was sacrificing all that. 
And I thought that people might not trust me because I'd been out of the church for a while. And what I learned eventually was it was the exact opposite, that there were a lot of people who told me, you know, I believe you more because mm. you were out of the church for a while. Mm. Yeah. Like, that what? makes sense to me. Why? And they told me. I mean, why, why would you say? I would say because you've seen both sides. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But more importantly, the part that I would say more is the witness that you have of mercy. I feel like mm-hmm. that strength of more than just the history. Right. But the foundation of him. Right. I feel right. like even com- it even makes it even stronger. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. 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 So yeah. people people told me things like this. They they told me that with certain other historians and scholars in the church, they wonder, but have they really opened their mind to the critical yeah. evidence? Have they opened their mind yes. to the evidence against, or have they always just looked at it from like one side? Yeah. And they said, with with me, they know. They know that's not the case. They they know I've looked at the thing from all different sides. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so um, hmm. I, I've been really amazed at that. And I've been really happy to be back in the church and to be able to contribute. And, um, you know, one of the things, so as I talked about Justice Smith's sincerity, um, this is, this is going to be an exclusive for you. It's the first time I've talked okay. about this in a podcast, right? Okay. Um, so I, I gave a presentation. Um, this has to do with Joseph Smith and polygamy. And kind of how some of those dots connect, right? So I gave a presentation first at um, the John Whitmer Historical Association in Nauvoo a few years ago. And most recently, I gave it at the a, an overlapping presentation at the FAIR conference about the origin of Nauvoo polygamy. Yeah. And um, at the FAIR conference, at JWHA, I was just talking about how does Nauvoo polygamy start? At the FAIR conference, I was talking more about like, how, what were Joseph Smith's motives? Can we tell how sincere he was religiously, prophetically? And um, this is one of the evidences that I brought in. So when we think about someone's sincerity, can we really know if someone can we really know someone's motives? Can we get inside somebody's head? Now, sometimes people might question that, right? But like on the way driving here, <laughs> like I had to assess the intentions mm. of a number of people that I I don't know. I don't. I have no idea who they are. They're just like these to me anonymous people in these cars. Um, we are wired to be able to infer other people's intentions, yeah. and. We obviously can do that with people who are around us, right? But a historian is in a unique position to do that with people in the past. Mm. Let's take Joseph Smith, okay? Emma Smith knew Joseph, particularly in certain contexts. She obviously knew him best as like in the home, as a husband and a father to their children, right? Brigham Young knew Joseph more as like a fellow priesthood leader, Mm. like he knew him from the context of priesthood quorums. Oliver Cowdery had known him as like a friend, like someone he worked with on the translation of the Book of Mormon as someone who experienced visionary experiences with him. Hiram Smith knew him as a brother, right? Each of these people had a different angle on him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So just like what we were saying earlier about you look at things from different angles, you look at someone from different angles and you get a bigger picture of them, right? So 
any one of those people only had mostly their own angle on Joseph. Mm. Emma did not know what was going on in those quorum meetings. Brigham did. Mm. Brigham did not know what Joseph was saying when he whispered in her ear or how he was caring for their children, right? And so on. They each had their own little niche, their own little slice, right, of what they saw of him. A historian has the advantage for someone like Joseph Smith that there are thousands of people who left some sort of record or reminiscence of Joseph Smith. There are thousands of records. The Joseph Smith Papers has compiled thousands and like 10,000 different sources. And some of those sources are journals that have like daily journal entries. And we have others. Those are just the sources that were created in some way by Joseph Smith. Then we have additional sources created by people around him that talk about him. So we have at least tens of thousands of data points on Joseph Smith, tens of thousands of actions, tens of thousands of Mm. statements Mm. that he made. And so what we can do is we can line those up in chronological order and also just like to see cause and effect relationships between his actions. And then that gives us a sense of what his motives are. And we can get a bigger picture of the man than anyone who knew him in life. We can't get a deeper picture of their particular angle. So Emma could have described what Joseph looked like, what his voice sounded like, the specific things he said to his children and so on in in ways that we can't know. But we have a wider, much wider angle than Emma had because we have records from thousands of people, not just one Mm. person's experience, right? So we can know. And this is why when I talk about like, Joseph reading the signs of providence, like I can see that in the data. We can see the things that his mother said about how he was always interested in everything of a religious nature from the time he's a little child. So Mm. he's not a con man who just latches on to, he's not interested in religion as a child and then he just latches onto it in adult life to get something else. He has an intrinsic interest in religion from the time he's a child. His parents believe his claims. Parents know, you've got kids. If your children are prone to tell stories, Mm. parents know that because children are not good at lying. They they think, (laughs) they might think they are, but they're not. Parents have the advantage that they've been children before, but children have never been parents before, right? Mm. So his parents and his older siblings, who should know if he's a storyteller, they believe him absolutely so much that they stake their lives on it. Hiram dies Ah. for it, right? Um, Then we have all the things in Nauvoo and elsewhere we can line up, like we can get all the different, not only his family's angle, but all these different angles, okay? And from those things, I can lay out a number of lines of argument that convince me. And remember, I just want to know what happened. So if Justice <laughs> Smith were a fraud, I would want to know that. Yeah. In fact, I did want to know that. That's why when I thought my evidence was pointing that way, that's what I believed. Mm. So like that's like I my my money's where my mouth is on this one, right? Like yeah. I just want to know what happened. And if the evidence were to show that he was a fraud, that's what I'd believe. In fact, that's what I did believe when the evidence seemed to show that, right? Now I have a much wider set of evidence. And I can tell you, Joseph Smith was religiously and prophetically sincere. His, his religious things that he taught, he believed, and he believed that God was Directing. guiding him, right? Yeah. So one of the areas that this comes out is in Joseph Smith's polygamy. Okay. Okay. That's an interesting... <laughs> like just let me just throw that out there. <laughs> well, well, so polygamy is one of the areas where the people who think that Joseph Smith is a con man what do they say are the giveaways? Uh, a lot of the ages. 
um, people who are married? Right. Well, is that what you're, he, he, is that what you're I, saying? I, I mean, even the fact that he practiced polygamy. Just in the, just that so alone. I, I, I've talked yeah. to people. I talked to some to somebody at Sunstone. Is that what you mean, though? Who? Yeah. Well, well. I, like what gives uh, it right. away of him? Well, well, His intention so, is what you mean? Right. So they see the big giveaway, I think, as being that he practiced polygamy in the first place. And then and then okay. the details of how he did it to the ages and so on. They think like, well, he's just lusting yeah, after these young women. And like they're like, why else would somebody introduce polygamy other than it's just all about sex? Yeah. Right. So this remember, this was what I had thought when I started the two years of research for Brian Hales, processing through those 1,500 sources and then doing further research after the research for Brian, right? I was assuming it was all about sex. And so I I have a really good picture of the the data here, the evidence. Yeah. Right. And um, so what it, what eventually happened though is I started piece together, and there are a few lines of evidence for this. And I'm going to lay out one. Okay? okay. But I've got like two other big ones that they'll have to wait for publication okay. in the future. Okay. okay. And I'm going to publish this too. And and it makes for a great. PowerPoint presentation. We don't have PowerPoint okay. here, so there's some things you have to like visualize more. I can show maybe. some too. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, so we have some signs of polygamy before Nauvoo, right? Obviously, the narrative's about Fanny Alger. Yeah. But what we have before Nauvoo is kind of vague, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, there are conflicting stories about the nature of the relationship. There's conflicting information people have given about the timing of the relationship. People have placed it all the way from 1833 to 1836 when it starts, right? Mm. Um, it's not – so it's not clear what the date was based on that. Um, it's um, – there's no credible narrative identifying who would have performed a marriage mm. between them. Um, and so this – I I th- I think, and I, I have one publication out on this already. I'm going to have two more, right? Mm. So I think that actually there's a lot more we can figure out about it, right, about the nature of the relationship, and that it actually points pretty solidly to Joseph Smith and Fanny Alder are doing this under the idea that this is biblical polygamy. Yeah. Okay? But because that relationship is brief after the relationship kind of comes out, uh, it, it it's dissolved, mm-hmm. right? And like... And we don't know a lot about it. This seems more like, in a way, proto-polygamy. Hmm. It's not until Nauvoo that Joseph Smith is actually introducing a new marriage system, if okay. this makes sense. So there, there yeah. appears to be a polygamous relationship in Kirtland, but a full-blown polygamous oh. marriage system comes hmm. in Nauvoo. In Nauvoo, hmm. we have exact marriage dates. Hmm. We know who performed a number of these marriages. Hmm. And we know that once the marriages were discovered, in, in all cases except one, they were not abandoned. And Joseph's teaching other men to do polygamy as well. He's not the only one who goes on to, into it. So in Nauvoo, we have the introduction of a new social system, a new marriage system. Okay. So if you want to understand any cultural system, any social system, a, a, a social practice, you got to look at the, uh, the origins of it. To understand why. why. Why does this practice exist? Why did they do this? Well, look at the original instance. Look at what I would call the prototype case. And I'm saying Fanny Alger, 
there's polygamy, there's a polygamous relationship, but as far as like a new system. That's when you're saying the the commencement, the start. The start of Nauvoo polygamy is in 1841. Yeah. And we're told as far back as 1886, people are saying that it starts with Joseph Smith's marriage to Louisa or there's some historical sources suggesting it might be pronounced Louisa Beeman. And so uh, supposedly, according to one affidavit, Joseph Smith married Louisa Beeman on April 5th, 1841. Okay. Now, I like to say that much of history is getting the events in the right order. Okay. And so it actually matters because think about um, the, the, this, this word, right? Yeah. The, the, with San Pellegrino. Here, yeah, yeah. Pellegrino. Yeah. Because we're all practiced at reading, yeah. when you look at those letters in the right order, you don't have to try to read it. Right. You can't help but read it. Once you look at the letters, yeah. your brain just sees the word. Yeah. Right? Once we get historical events in the right order, the cause and effect relationships, the story just kind of pops out. Yeah. Often we don't get the story right because we don't have the events in the right order. We haven't figured out what mm. comes before what. So it matters what order he married these women in. Hmm. The story is... He, the commonly accepted stories, he marries Louisa Beeman first, then he marries Zina Huntington Jacobs, then her sister Presendia, um, and then others from there, right? Um, there's something funny about the marriage to Louisa Beeman, though. Hmm. It's several months before the others. Once Joseph starts Nauvoo polygamy, there's usually only a gap of like a month or so between marriages. Okay. Between Louisa Beeman, who's supposedly first, and Zina Huntington Jacobs, there's six and a half months. Hmm. So it's an unusually big gap. Also, I'm assuming your audience knows, right, that like early in Nauvoo, Joseph was offering marrying, he was often sealed to women who were already gotten legally married to another man. That's right. And there's a lot of controversy about why, what is he doing, and so on. Brian Hales has argued that these are not sexual relationships. That that is a matter of some controversy, right? But mm. like, um, uh, in any case, we know that Zina Huntington was married. Her sister Presendia was married. All the women oh. after Louisa, the next several women that he marries, had all gotten married already to someone else before Joseph. Okay. okay? So Louisa is an outlier. Mm. Right. In Justice Smith's first dozen Nauvoo plural marriages, he's being sealed to married women, except Louisa, hmm. who's supposedly first. Okay. So why is this one one of these things is not like the others, right? Like why why is and they this know marriage, that date for sure? No. No. And that's the issue. Okay. Wait. That that the thing is what, do they know any of the dates? Yes. Okay, okay. So some of the dates, for instance, Zina's marriage. She gives us the date, October 27th, when okay. She gives us the date. Liza Beeman died in 1845. She doesn't give any accounts of her marriage to Joseph Smith. Hmm. But her brother-in-law, Joseph B. Noble, performed the marriage. Okay. He says it was April 5th, 1841. So that's the date that's been used. But he also says it was on the 6th. He also says it was May he also says it was 1840. He also says it was 1842. He doesn't know. He doesn't remember the date. Mm. The date that he does give, April 5th, two years after that, April 5th, 1843, 
Joseph Noble enters a plural marriage. Okay. It's on April 5th. It's the same day he says in this one affidavit that Joseph's marriage was. In other words, what's, what's the likelihood that it's on the exact same day? Not good. Mm, not really. He's probably using the date of his own first plural mm. marriage and projecting it back onto Joseph's plural marriage. Mm. Okay. The fact that his accounts all disagree with one another shows he doesn't remember. He has a biographer, a descendant of his, who's a good scholar, who says that Joseph B. Noble was terrible with dates. Really? His, bio- his descendant biographer said this. This is the guy we're relying on for our date for the first novel plural marriage, and he was terrible with dates. How much reliance should we give on his date for this? Not a lot. Not a lot, especially since he contradicts it. He never, I don't think he ever gives the same date twice in any of his And how many total does he give? Well, he, he gives two days two of the for month. Sure. Okay. He gives two months, April and May, and he gives three years. Okay. So somewhere between 1840 and 1842. Well, it's not 1840 because that would be long before the other. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and um, the only thing his dates have in common is they're all in the early 1840s and they're all in the spring. So it looks like he remembers the time of year. He remembers okay. that it's spring, but he doesn't remember really anything else. <laughs> so, so here's where this becomes significant. Okay, in the Temple Lot case, um, in the 1890s, he's called on to testify, and he's asked about the date of the marriage. He says, "I perform this marriage." He's asked the date, and he says he keeps waffling on the date, and ultimately he says, "Well, sometime between 1840 and 42. I don't know." Hmm. So then the attorney cross-examining him asks, well, you don't know when it was. Where was it? And he says it was at my house in Nauvoo. Aha. Hmm. Okay. I've got him. Okay. He doesn't build his house until after fall of 1841. So there's no way the marriage occurred at his house in the spring before the house existed. Whoa. He doesn't move to Nauvoo until When fall did he build the house? Fall of 41. Well, so, well, actually, we don't know when he built the house. We just know it was after he moves to Nauvoo in the fall of okay. 41. So if it's in the spring, it ain't the spring of 1841. It's the spring of 1842. Interesting. So suddenly, remember, this guy, mm. this Liza Beeman was at the front of the list, right? She's number one on the list. She's not really number one. She actually, we move her over so she takes her proper place. And this is why it's good for visuals. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, maybe I can get you some slides for okay. this. But like, um, the she moves from being first to being like 10th or 12th or something. She moves significantly. So then um, we look at, well, then who was the first? Mm. Now plural wife. The one who was number two becomes number one. So that's Zina Huntington Jacobs, okay? So a thought experiment that I like to do with people is, um, hmm. and, and I'd, I'd be interested in having you okay. and like the audience, people in the audience, I'd like to have you do a quick thought experiment. I want you to like actually visualize, okay. just for a minute, just for a moment, like okay. Joseph Smith looking at the woman who's going to be his first novel plural wife and thinking about marrying her, right? Anticipating being married to her, okay? Okay. So, okay, so you've got an image. Okay. Right? Now, um, you can open your eyes. Um, <laughs> I'm just uh, trying to make it real. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let me ask you this. How many months pregnant was she in your image? Not pregnant. Okay. In real life, she was seven months pregnant. In real life. 
Zina Huntington Jacobs. The first? The first. Okay. Says she marries him on October 27, 1841. She has a child on January 2nd of 1842. Whoa. Just over two months later. She was seven months pregnant. Hmm. So think about the story that people have from a, mm. a disaffected angle. Intention. What is this polygamy thing all about? When Joseph mm. Smith is starting up Nauvoo polygamy, why is he doing it? What are his motives? And the idea is, well, it's sex. What else could it be? Right? What else could it be? Mm. Well, if that were the correct model, and remember what we do is we compare Start. models. How well does this model explain the behavior that we see versus this model over here? We're different different models, okay? So if it's about sex, if it's just he wants to expand his sexual circle, right? He wants to have sex with more women. More relationships. He's lusting after women or whatever. You would expect that he would be going for women who would be the most immediately sexually available and the most attractive, Mm. right? Well, in the medical beliefs of the time, you shouldn't have sex during pregnancy because it was believed to be harmful to the mother and the child. Hmm. And so a woman hmm. who's seven months pregnant is not going to be immediately sexually available, right? Hmm. If, 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 if this is about sex, on that model, we'd expect he's going to start Nauvoo polygamy hmm. with like the, the young, non-pregnant, immediately available women. And instead... Is He's starting with a pregnant woman. So the next woman after this is Presendia, Zina's sister. It appears she's pregnant. So For sure. Not for sure. We know that she had a baby. She He marries her in December. He sealed her in De- mid-December, something like December 17, 1841. Hmm. We know from family records that she has a baby in 42. We just don't know the day. They didn't. The baby died immediately, so they didn't record the baby's actual birthday. They just put in the family records 1842. Mm. Well, given that a pregnancy lasts nine months, right. and a year lasts 12 right. months, right? There is more than a two-thirds chance that she was pregnant at the time that Joseph marries her. Okay. Now the third wife after her is pretty seems pretty clear she's not pregnant. But the fourth Nabu, poor wife, Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner, was seven or eight months pregnant. Wow. We know when the baby was born. She even says she was pregnant in her account, but we know when the baby was born. And we know the the, the marriage occurred in January or February. The baby's born in March. And so we know she's seven or eight months pregnant, okay? And so this is not, so, so just like when you imagined Joseph looking at his prospective first plural wife, you didn't imagine her pregnant. No. All the people who are taking the model, Joseph Smith, particularly those people who are taking the model that it's about sex, they're definitely not picturing pregnant women. That's not what they no. would predict from their model at all. They're not, mm. they're not predicting that, right? But that's actually what's happening hmm. is Nauvoo polygamy starts with pregnant women. Interesting. And so they are not going to be as attractive at that time, and they're not going to be sexually available at that time. So it's the nature of libido that libido doesn't say, I want to have sex someday. <laughs> libido says, I, right I want sex now, right? And so hmm. if it's about sex... Like, 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 if 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 Joseph Smith is doing this to get to sort of maximize his immediate sex with the hot babes, 
somebody needed to give this guy lessons because he's doing it wrong, right? So, like, like th- it doesn't fit. So, so what are some of the arguments that people might have to say, okay, well, so it's not about sex. What else would they might say that it was about besides that? So, so, so once we see that, like, just saying it's sex isn't a good explanatory model for a story, and it doesn't, it doesn't explain. So, a so good you're, expl- just, you're just testing that well, one hold, first. Hold on, yeah. yeah. So, so a good explanatory model actually explains. Yeah. That's what it does, right? And this, the sex, it's he started novel polygamy for sex model doesn't That's explain it. this. So the so the thing we can say I think with the greatest confidence is this about. doesn't look like it's about sex. Mm. If if it were we'd expect him to do it differently. Mm. Okay. Um and so um then we can ask well what was it about? Now, the fact that more than one, it looks like three of the four <laughs> early Navu marriages that enters were with pregnant women, and at least two of them were very pregnant women, right? What it looks like is he's deliberately selecting very pregnant women, suggesting that, like, it's almost as if he wants a child to be born within that marriage as soon as possible. But it doesn't matter whether it's his own biological child or not. So Joseph's earlier revelations had an idea of lineal priesthood that he had special priesthood blessings that he inherited by lineage and that his children could inherit from him. Hmm. And so one reasonable possibility then, given that theological context, is that by marrying the pregnant women, Joseph was essentially trying to adopt their children into these special blessings Hmm. that he understood that his lineage had. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, another model that we could use here. And I'm not saying this is like absolute, right? Because I'm approaching this as a historian and I'm just trying to figure out what happened. But- Because how old is he at the time? Joseph at that time is 35. 35, Um, okay. Because I'm just saying, because Ben, that's, because even Emma, like it's almost like for his own posterity through his first wife, Mm -hmm. right? Well, technically, that's another detail, but um, it would be, it wouldn't be possible unless he, unless he would have intentionally got married and then, uh, you know, had sex with one of the women and then they had a child, right? But you're saying he purposely chose someone who was already married, uh, or no, already who pregnant. already who already who was already pregnant at least, with the intent to potentially um, have that that baby to be born underneath this promise, these promises, right. these covenants. And so one one reasonable possibility here is if Joseph understood that polygamy was about raising up a righteous posterity, raising up seed to God, that he may be trying to do that without the necessity of having polygamous That's sex. Right. That he's doing it by trying to adopt these women's children. And so on that understanding, it would be his motives would be the exact opposite right. of what people are often assuming. Rather than his his early Navu plural marriages appearing to be motivated about by sex, they appear to have religious theological motives that may even involve trying to avoid having to go the route of polygamous sex. Yeah. Right. Um, mm. So that that at least is way more consistent with the pattern of what he's doing than the model that this is about sex. 
Mm-hmm. And I think too, like what I was trying to hit at too is um even with even if Save was with Emma, it was very unlikely that she I mean she could have been she could have conceived if his intention was to have a of a child born under the covenant. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If she's she's already probably later in her years as well. Oh yeah. Do you see what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So like the she's chances... a little bit older than him. He's he's almost yeah. thirty six. Yeah. At the time that he marries Zion, he's, he's coming up. So I'm saying even but I'm saying to to He's make it even older than him, so yeah. Do you see to make it even stronger? It's like if he he could have, if that was really his intention, to not have to worry about having sex, and then also to have a baby born into a covenant. Yeah, like the chances of him even doing it with yeah. her was probably very That's slim. Interesting. I mean, you so know? right? They they do have a child in 1844, but oh. just to, but to shore up what you're saying, actually, I've looked at this and women's fertility actually starts to significantly drop around 37, which is exactly uh, how old Emma was at the time. Yeah. And so that would fit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. And interesting so, stuff. Yeah. So so the pattern, if we look at the the details of Joseph Smith's behavior, right, They they those details will fit some models of understanding him better than other models. And, and over and over, I'm seeing that the model that he's simply an opportunist doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. And 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 again, I would caution that like, I mean, I do see Justice Smith is very human. I'm not saying he never does anything wrong or self-interested. Yeah, yeah. He certainly does, yeah. right? But but the thing is that he does those things in a larger context that discloses his his care for other people, like I was talking about with his family. Yeah. Right. Um, his religious sincerity and his very strong belief that God, he's a prophet, that God is working through, that God is guiding him. Um, yeah, so that that is one of the things that has really... That's powerful. Um, that's really... Yeah. That's amazing. change my view of him. Wow. So how did you discover that? Like, you just dug deeper and deeper and deeper and found that, 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 uh, that those different dates and then the brother... No, wait, who was it that you said... The, that was bad at bad at the oh, dates. Joseph B. Noble. Yeah. yeah, you just were looking in the. Well, it was multiple things. So I, I I am totally open to building on what any other historian finds. And there's a historian who, until recently, was like I think kind of the head of signature books, Gary Bergera. And Gary, he's he's definitely coming from like the vantage point of Joseph Smith is. He thinks that Joseph Smith is, I think, maybe a pious fraud is what he thinks he is or hmm. something. Hmm. But he published an article several years back in Dialogue um, arguing that the dates of some of Joseph Smith's early Nauvoo marriages are more uncertain than people have realized. And so he reprinted various affidavits where Joseph Noble and others give a range of dates. And... It was actually once I saw that article, I realized, A, he was right. He was really on to something. Now, now, but Gary didn't draw out the next step kind of conclusion, which was, well, if, if um, Joseph B. Noble's all over the map on his dates, and if he didn't move into his house, uh, if he didn't move to Nauvoo until fall of 41, he wasn't performing that marriage in Nauvoo in spring of 41. Yeah. So that pushes it to 42. So Louise is not the first. Jeez. So then you look at Zina. 
And I don't think I realized at first that Zina was pregnant. I I think I'd for, mm. I had known that but forgotten it. So then I started thinking, well, if Zina's the first, then that means he starts out with polyandry. He starts out with marrying women who are already married. And I thought, why? Hmm. So, so all of his early Nauvoo marriages are actually to women who have already married someone else. Hmm. Why? What, what's hmm. up? And then something, I was looking at something to try to understand this better, and I realized she was pregnant. <laughs> she, was, she was very, very pregnant. And I thought, that's, hmm. that's huge because that has implications for understanding why he's – this is the prototype case of Nauvoo polygamy. Why is he doing it? This has implications for understanding his motives. And then only subsequently did I, like, I, I was examining the other early wives, and I just, out of that research came, oh, that's right, Mary Elizabeth Rollins was pregnant. And then, oh, mm. wait a minute, Presendia was probably pregnant too. And it's like, there's, by that time I was looking to mm. see if the women were pregnant. And this is, this appears to be something that just nobody's done. It's just like looked at, Okay, how many other women were pregnant, and so on, and what what does that disclose? What are the implications? That's interesting. That's powerful, man. So, this is just a side note, and I don't even know if I'll put this in here at all. But I'm just curious to you personally to know if um, when they when they started because he started inviting other men to practice. Yeah. At the start of theirs, were there any? Did you see any signs of that too? Not to make the assumption yeah. that it, some well, of the other men, the other women, were pregnant at times. Not that not that that would be yeah the same thing. I you know that's a that is a good interesting question. Um, one of the early the earliest additional man that Joseph appears to bring into Nauvoo polygamy is Willard Richards. Yeah, and excuse me, in that case it would have been a polyandrous marriage. She was already married, but I don't believe she was pregnant. I I could I have reason to think she wasn't, but I I would have to look into that again. Um, that is an interesting question to see. Is this a pattern that extends beyond um, beyond just Joseph? And by the way, I, I mean, one, one thing that people might, uh, one issue that people might raise is um, that, um, well, maybe these children were actually Joseph Smith's children. Maybe he was already mm. having a hmm. uh, relationship with the woman before he married her. Interesting. So it's good to know that the children of these marriages, Zina's marriage, the child survived, and I believe the same thing's the case with Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner, but certainly with Zina, their child, um, Zebulon Henry Jacobs, has living male descendants whose Y chromosomes have been tested. Hmm. And they are, he was absolutely the son of her legal husband. Wow. Not the son of Joseph Smith. And Interesting. So, um, and it hmm. just, yeah, I, I that's mean, really cool. Yeah. No, so with the, with those with that same question, I'm wondering though that um because Joseph Smith his keys are different, right? Oh, then, right. Which I think is which I feel like even strengthens it even more that it was only him. If it was only him, mm. because him being the uh, you know, I mean, or even to their belief that he was the head of the dispensation. That I mean, it wasn't just that he had the Melchizedek priesthood, but that he was like. You know, like his keys, like his, uh, I don't know, I'd say his, not his mantle. What am I trying to say? I don't know enough about yeah. the details of, uh, of what the names specifically are, but like his priesthood is different. Right. 
Anyway, a lot of people say that people leave the church, but they don't leave it alone. Um, and what is your perspective on that? And because for even for you, I mean, your your intention to keep on, I mean, that was your job to be a historian and to mm-hmm. study it. But you said that you would still go to, you know, different conferences and things like that. What is your perspective of that? I've never had a chance to ask someone who had who did leave about people the yeah, idea that people can leave the church yeah because that's what people are they like yeah they there they go again they can leave but they can't leave it alone what I is mean, just what is your perspective yeah sure i mean i would have multiple kind of perspectives on it so one would be i, I mean that's not true as a general principle yeah i'm wondering what, because there actually are a lot of people who left the church quietly yeah haven't had any sort of animus against the church. They just stopped believing. There are a lot of people who just like go inactive or yeah. or maybe have their name removed from the records. Um, I I was actually interested in this at the time that I left the church. There was um, a historian. I've got his name, but I don't know if I can quite bring it to the surface. Um, but I was really fascinated. I read an interview that someone did with this guy and he had stopped believing in the church, but he still was like friendly toward it, well disposed toward it. So there are a lot of people. The thing, the thing about that thing, people can leave the church, but they can't leave it alone. Is that um, only only the instances where that's true stand out? If someone that's quietly right. leaves the church, nobody no. really notices. But if mm. somebody leaves the church and they raise a big fuss and they attack the church, or whatever. Everybody notices, right? <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah. um, that's, I, that's really interesting. <laughs> but I, I would also say, I mean, one thing I would like for other Latter-day Saints to understand more is like what it's like to leave the church and how that looks because it, mm. it looks so different. And, and yeah. there's, there really is a lot of judgment that's put on people. So about a decade ago or more, um, uh, then President uh, Dieter Uchtdorf gave a talk in conference called Come Join With Us. Yeah. And I love that talk. And, and one, of the, one of the things he said in that talk yeah, was that um, people often assume that when someone leaves the church, they, um, they just left because they were offended or because they wanted to sin. And he actually said that that's actually like insulting yeah. to people who leave, that that's just, that's just a stereotype. Obviously, there are people who leave because they're offended. I think there are a lot of times maybe teenagers or whatever who their friends drink and do other things that the church doesn't support, and they sort of drift away from the church. But so so they have a different lifestyle. But in my experience, as an ex-Mormon at that time, among other ex-Mormons, going to ex-Mormon social events, the other ex-Mormons were like me. They had really... They had been really devout. They had really strongly believed this had been really important to them, but they found things that made mm. them question, and then they ended up leaving, right, because of those. And I'm not saying that, yeah. like, any of us are perfect, and there are things that I can see in retrospect about when I left that I think, well, I that's something I could have been doing differently in yeah. my life or whatever. But, but I didn't leave because I wanted to sin. I mean, it, I... I, the restoration had provided the ultimate meaning of my life. That's not something I was going to give up without a fight. I, yeah. I was trying to retain belief, but not retaining belief, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, and so um, when people leave the church, 
One of the reasons why they behave in ways that are problematic, so, so there are a couple reasons, right? So, so if you have a family member or friend who starts having doubts, um, maybe loses their faith, you, you might see them like uh, having a beer or, yeah. you know, uh, drinking coffee or whatever, like doing things that are not in line with the church's standards. And then the easy assumption there is, well, yeah. they're just they're just doubting or disbelieving because they because they want to do those things. Yeah. But hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Think this through, right? Like, <laughs> why were those people not drinking before? Mm. Yeah. Because they yeah. believed in the word of wisdom. Yeah. Once they don't believe in the word of wisdom anymore, mm. what reason do they have to not drink coffee or drink alcohol? Right. Yeah. Like they and, and, and so there's a more obvious reason than the idea that they're leaving the church because they want to sin. It's once you stop believing in the church, you stop believing in the word of wisdom. Yeah. And so you don't have a reason to not do those things anymore. Yeah. Also, something to recognize about people who leave the church. And, and, and it, this is important to me because, like, when I was outside the church, there were some people, like I said, who were really kind to me, right? Like Brian Hills, yeah. like Dan Peterson and others. But there were also people on the internet who just assumed the worst of me. They thought yeah. I was core whore. They thought I was on there mm. to lead other people astray, like deliberately lead other people mm. astray, mm. right? And that's just like, mm. whatever happened to like judge not or something? Like, what do you, what do you, what did they know about me? They didn't know anything. All they knew about me was some things I said on the internet. That's it, right? Mm. They didn't mm. know what's going on inside of me or my own struggles or whatever, you know? Um, so, um, anyway, when people leave the church or have doubts, they often start in a way kind of acting out. They, they might say things that are like deliberately provocative. So yeah. if you go on, I don't know if the recovery from Mormonism board still exists on, uh, exmormon.org, yeah. but for years when I would occasionally go there, it was like a cesspool, right? Because people would say, they would be very angry and they would say things, they would think it was funny to pair obscenities with some general authority. They would create some quote from Boyd K. Packer mm. where he used a bunch of obscenities and so on. This this seemed hilarious to them, right? Um, now, why? Mm. This It seems very juvenile. Why would an adult do this, right? Mm. Well, I can tell you why. It's because... The church is actually really, really powerful at giving someone a sense of identity. Mm. And if you ever try to break away from a powerful sense of identity, it's a really mm. hard thing to do. And sometimes what you have to do is actually act against that sense of identity, mm. right? So like if you leave the church, but you still never have a beer or never drink a cup of coffee, mm keep wearing garments or whatever, you don't feel like you've left the church. You feel like you're mm. still a Latter-day Saint, even though your intention is, I don't believe this anymore. I feel like I need to leave those. So part of the way that people acquire a new identity is by deliberately acting out against the old identity. Mm. That's usually just a phase. So if you've got like relatives or friends who are going on the internet and like using obscenities about the church or whatever, Give them time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually that's going to pass. There are only a few, only a small percentage kind of get stuck there. Oh. Must don't. And that, and this would be another thing about like, um, that I guess I would say to people who are, maybe now to address like people who are questioning, yeah. or have doubts, or maybe have lost their faith, right? 
I'd say don't give up. I'd say keep searching, right? Because like in my case, I spent years developing a model of Joseph Smith as an opportunist. I, Like I said, I helped process most of, you know, find and process through research most of the 1,500 sources that Brain Health cites about Joseph Smith and polygamy. <laughs> I, 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 I was that whole time exploring the model, that building this model of Joseph Smith as like an opportunist motivated by sex and his mm. polygamy. And I was wrong. Mm. Like I, I actually held that view for more than just those five years that polygamy was really about sex. I held it for a very long time. And then I started finding this, the discovery I laid out to you about the order of the marriages, that wasn't the first yeah. discovery. There was yeah. another one yeah. before that that huh. made me think, whoa, hmm. wait a minute. What I'm finding doesn't fit that model. It suggests he had theological, spiritual motives for polygamy. Then I found other stuff since then, even additional stuff. And so I kind of like had to eat humble pie, right? Hmm. Because I had made myself one of the two biggest experts in the world on this subject and arguably knew the sources better than anybody. And yet I was fundamentally wrong about Joseph Smith's motives. And, and I recognize that strongly now. I, those, those were not his motives. I'm not saying that like uh, he wasn't attracted to his wives and that that didn't like factor in in some yeah, way. Yeah. This isn't the reason for polygamy, right? And so like huh. I was able to come back to the church ultimately because I kept searching. E even though I thought I had it figured out, I didn't stop taking in new information. Um, and I'm, I'm not unique in this, right? Like if, if yeah. people have like, if they stay open uh. to what, what they might find, if yeah. I could be wrong, if I could get, get that level of expertise on Justice Smith's polygamy and be wrong about his motives until I discovered something new, I can be wrong about all kinds of things. And so can other people, even yeah. if they think that they're experts on whatever they're yeah. studying, right? And so, um, like, I, in my experience too, like, part, part of what helped me to come back to the church was not only taking a wider view of the historical sources, the evidence, but taking a wider view of things that I experienced. Mm. So it's not just focusing on what was wrong with the church, what, what were the flaws that I saw in Latter-day Saint culture and the community and so on, but what were the things that worked? What were the things mm. that the church had taught me that were good, that worked in my life? And so often it really is the case. A lot of times there's a temptation to like throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And so if you are doubting, right, if you're questioning, like keep hold of what you do know is good, right? Like the things that work in your life, the ways that the church encourages you to do good, to, to serve others, to connect with others, to, you know, to do good things for your family, whatever it is that you find in the church that's helpful to you, like keep, keep holding on to that, you know? And um, and also a big thing that I left out of the earlier part of my journey has been just huge for me, uh, both in like returning to spirituality, 
and then in making sense of a lot of things has been gratitude. Yeah. And so um, when I um, when I left the church, I was in a bad place emotionally. Um, I was frustrated. I felt very disillusioned with Joseph Smith. Um, and I think this is the case for a lot of people. A lot of people, when they leave, it's so disturbing what they're going through and maybe the conflict they get in with family members or whatever. Um, well, there's there's research that shows in positive psychology that when we are having negative experiences, we get a kind of tonal vision, even literally. Like mm. they've, they've done studies on how well we can see things in our peripheral vision when mm. we're in a good mood or a bad mood. Mm. And like, I think most people, when they've been depressed at some time, to some degree, they realize that like, when we're depressed, we get tunnel vision, right? You, yeah. you only see the bad. Or when you're angry. Yeah. When you're angry, you can only see things that make you angry. You don't see the good <laughs> things that you, you don't feel grateful or whatever, you know. Um, mm, mm. Well, when, when I was um, in an emotionally bad place when I left the church, that gave me tunnel vision. It narrowed... Um, how well I could see what the different possibilities were. And it was actually like practicing gratitude, like mm. starting to keep a gratitude journal and so on to, to really consider more what are the good things in my life that I started to become happier huh. and less, I sort of was able to maybe kind of overcome, if you will, some of my conditioning around like the hmm. the things that had been painful for me in leaving the church, right? Hmm. And get like a bigger vision. And then I started to be able to see more possibilities because, because being happier, the research shows, helps us to be more creative, helps us to have a wider vision. And hmm. so um, I, one of the world, the, the world's greatest expert on the psychology of gratitude, Robert Emmons, yeah. um, he wrote a book called something like Thanks, yeah. The Psychology of Gratitude. Oh. Um, I read this book when I was an atheist and I realized that I really wanted to become a grateful person. Mm. And I started looking at the good things in my life, the blessings in my life, and realizing that I didn't have anybody to thank. Mm. And that was, in a way, that was mm. kind of a first step, even before I read that book, Biocosm, it was kind of a first mm. step into like having a sense of like, at least conceptualizing God, wanting there to be a God, and so on, wrestling with the question of God a little more. And but, but Robert Emmons is a devout Christian, and I've communicated with him some, become something of a friend of his, and such hmm. a cool guy. But he told me some of the things that he's learned about gratitude in recent years that are not in his publications yet, hmm. and about how gratitude connects with spirituality. And he told me that he used to go to a church, present church, that had like um, less of an emphasis on grace. And then he started going to one that had more of an emphasis on grace and helping him understand that like this is the root of the gospel is that we're offered a gift hmm. and something to be grateful for. And so we don't need to, tr we shouldn't, it's the gratitude is not about trying to force ourselves to feel something we feel like we should feel. Mm. Gratitude is about recognizing the reality mm. that 
everything in my life ultimately comes from outside of me. I did not create any of this. This this opportunity to be here talking with you today, I didn't I didn't create this. This studio, I didn't, yeah. I didn't create this. This, you know, the this body of mine, others made this for me. I am the recipient of countless gifts. Gratitude, he says, is the most honest way to live a life because it recognizes the reality that everything ultimately comes from outside of me, everything that mm. I have, even the things that I do something with, like my yeah. research. Yeah. I didn't create the mind that I was given. Mm. I didn't create the historical research materials. I didn't create the other books that I read that go into my process of research. So sure, I do something with what I'm given, but everything before that is given to me. Mm. And so he started to find, Bob Emmons, that when he started realizing more the grace that he's been given, the gifts that he's been given, he stopped having doubts in his mm. faith. And he said that he, from his insight now, is that um, not only is gratitude not only does gratitude build faith, he says gratitude is faith. Gratitude mm. is a form of faith. So the more mm. we cultivate our gratitude to God, to other people, and maybe even like to the church, right? The, the other people who have done service for us, who've taught us and so on, like um, the more it builds us up we can have a closer relationship with God. We can be happier and have a better life. And it, it, it encourages us to give more to other people when we realize we've received. Paul, yeah. Apostle Paul says, yeah. what, what, what do you have that you did not receive? Once we realize everything is received, right? Mm. Then we realize I should be doing more to help other people, right? And it, it broadens our vision beyond ourselves. It broadens our ability to see mm. possibilities, and it it strengthens our faith. It is a kind of faith. And so, you know, if you're wrestling with faith, like a counterintuitive thing, something you won't usually hear, right? Like learn gratitude, right? Learn to recognize. Don't you don't have to make up things to be grateful for. Look around and identify to the things you. that you have that are gifts to be grateful for. Wow. This has all been amazing. This last piece that you're mentioning to me is what redemption really is. Because when you realize that there's nothing that you could do to earn or buy that, yeah. your natural your natural reaction is, well, if God's that merciful to me, yeah. then I need to be more merciful to others. Right. But if I'm just seeking that mercy, like expecting it, well, you already have it. And once you start to see that, it changes the way you see other people and it changes i think like that's the that is the epitome of what reciprocity is when it comes to repentance i think is you're not owing them anything because you could have even bought it in the first place right and i think that a, an interesting theme to this whole thing to me is that ideal is that idea in your in your whole experience that you had and i don't i don't want to project that onto you or anything no no but it's just the idea of like if you look back at all these experiences that you've mentioned that you can really see these intricate little details of God putting you there, putting you here, reminding you this, reminding you that. And the thing that really changed, none of it changed. You just saw it differently, like you mentioned. 
God has been there through the whole journey. And he was there. He never, he, he was there. He, even when I was alone, right? Yeah. Like, even when, to me, there was no God, right? I gave up on God. God never gave up on me. And that's, that's it, right? Like, um, yeah. And so... Mm. And this, this all, as long as this conversation has been, this is a tiny nutshell of like, oh, what happened, right? And there was a lot that was really painful and difficult, you know? And yet I can look back and, and just like I was saying earlier about Joseph Smith, looking in his life and seeing the signs of providence, I see that same hand in my life, right? Mm. And you know, in something that I'll be publishing in the future on the first vision is another part of what brought me back. I came to see that Joseph Smith mentions in different places the idea that, like, the first vision, he implies that the first vision wasn't all just in the grove, that actually God came down to his level to lift him up to God's level, that there was a heavenly ascent, that Joseph, mm. like Lehi, yes. in Lehi's first vision, the presence of God comes down on that pillar of fire, and then Lehi is lifted up and sees God seated on his throne, right? This happened, I'll be arguing, there's good evidence, this happened in the first vision. So think about this, okay? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, the early Christians had a formula where they said, God became man in order that man might become God. So you look in the Book of Mormon on the title page, it says, the Book of Mormon is here to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, right? He's, he's God, right? But he's God who came down to our level as human beings to lift us up to his level. The first vision is encapsulating the whole gospel plan. God came down to our level. He comes down to Joseph's level to mm. lift us up to his level, which he does with Joseph, right? And so this is another thing that I've seen. This is something that we have to be so grateful for, right, that God would do this for us. We are, we are never alone. Right, he he. Mm. The whole gospel plan centers around his willingness to come down to our level to be with us in all of our suffering, in everything that we go through, in everything that we happen that happens to us. Even when we cannot see it, cannot perceive it, mm. he is there with us. And as we accept that gift, right, we recognize the magnitude of that gift, then. Think about like what the, the people who were baptized in Mosiah 18 at the Waters of Mormon, they're covenanting that they will take upon themselves the burdens of others, right? We are imitating what he does for us when we're baptized, just like he came down to our level to bear our burdens and lift us up. What we covenant when we come into the church is that we will comfort those who stand in need of comfort. We will mourn with those who mourn. We will bear one another's burdens. We will, as Paul says, live the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. And so that is the gospel. The gospel is what we receive from him and accept from him, and then that we go and do likewise. We live our lives that way. And so this is what we're supposed to be having faith in, not 
was Joseph Smith perfect? Was he a perfect exemplar? Or Brigham, was Brigham Young racist? Or did, you know, did these guys do everything yes. right? No, 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 no. Mm. The gospel isn't about them. They're vehicles. They're instruments. The gospel is about what God did for us in Jesus Christ and how then, as we gratefully receive that, it inspires us to go and do the same for other people. That's the gospel. I won't add anything to it. I always end this way. Um, I believe what we said is true. Uh, this is uh, Don Bradley, uh, a historian, genius, I believe. But don't take our word for it. Find out for yourself. Until next time.